My plan over the next several weeks is, Lord willing, to return to our periodic journey through the Psalter, through the book of Psalms. So if you'll turn there with me now, we've made our ways, our way over the years through the first 110 in the collection, plus a handful of others that come later in the set. And so tonight we'll resume our travels through the Psalms with number 111. The 111th Psalm, which specifies no author or setting, and which reads as follows. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Father, your praise does endure forever. And as we look at this psalm, we ask now that you would speak to us in such a way that our voices would be continually, consistently and forever a part of that praise. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now this psalm begins in a fashion with which we are quite accustomed. Praise the Lord. Fully 11 out of the 150 psalms begin with precisely that same wording. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah, in the original Hebrew. And of course, Those 11 psalms are not the only psalms in the collection which have the Lord's praise as a primary motif. Praise the Lord. This is one of the great themes all throughout the Psalter, isn't it? And surely the reason is because this is one of the great activities with which mankind ought to occupy himself. For, as another psalm reminds us, it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Praise is becoming. I had to go to the doctor recently because I've been having some problems with my throat. And I found myself a little bit embarrassed to have to tell the physician that one of the times when it bothers me most is when I'm singing. Because I guess I assume that most people, including this doctor, would find it strange to think about a grown man singing often enough to notice a problem with his throat. And doing so with such gusto so as to irritate it. But since it was the holidays, I was able to ameliorate my self-consciousness a little bit by saying that I was singing Christmas carols. But, you know, I shouldn't actually feel the need to explain myself when it comes to singing, should I? I shouldn't be bashful about the fact that I sing because, according to the book of Psalms, it's one of the best possible uses of my time and of my voice. It is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Psalm 147. 
It is good, in other words, when you sing to God in the shower or in your car. It is good when you make a song a regular part of your family devotionals. And it is certainly good when we stand in this room together and praise the Lord. And that's what this psalm and so many others are urging us to do. Praise the Lord. And though I'm not sure Psalm 111 is the most well-known of the psalms of praise, it certainly does give us a straightforward look at the how and the where and the why of this most vital human activity. The what of the psalm is simply that we should praise the Lord. But how should we praise the Lord? And where should we do so? And why? These are questions for which this psalm has plain answers. And the answers are there not just so that we can pass a pop quiz about the particulars of Christian singing or praise, but so that we'll actually join the song and do so in a manner worthy of the Lord. So let's just consider those questions this evening. How should we praise the Lord? And where? And why? And we'll begin with verse 1, which answers the question, how should we praise the Lord? And what is the answer there in the first verse? I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. With all my heart. Now that's not the only thing the Bible has to say about how we should praise the Lord. There are also words about praising the Lord with clean lips and praising the Lord with clean lives and singing in the Holy Spirit and singing biblical content. But the emphasis here is on the heart. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, which means that our singing is not just about having the right words and not even just about living the right lives before we gather together in song, indispensable as those two things are. But this verse is telling us that fitting praise also has to do with what's going on in our hearts when we sing. For instance, do we really listen to what we're singing? Or are we so accustomed to the songs and tunes that we can sing them without really thinking about what we're saying? I know that happens to me far too often. Maybe that's a good reason to sing a new, sing to the Lord a new song now and again. Do we listen to what we're singing? And do we believe what we're listening to and what we're singing? Or do we simply give the lyrics lip service because we are supposed, after all, to sing about God's faithfulness and his holiness and the gospel and so on? Do we believe what we're singing? And do we love what we're singing? That's really the whole reason for singing, isn't it? People don't generally sing the words of an instruction manual or the values printed on a spreadsheet. We sing about things that move our hearts, right? And what should move our hearts more than the things of God? And so the psalmist doesn't just say, I will give thanks to the Lord with really sound lyrics. I will give thanks to the Lord set to an appropriate tune. I will give thanks to the Lord with lips that are clean, all of which things are important. But what the psalmist says here is, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. My heart will be in the singing. There should be feeling in our singing. There should be faith in what we're singing and in the God about whom we're singing. And that faith should spill over in love for this marvelous God. And that love should make us all the more want to sing, to lift our voices to the Lord, to fill the room with his praise, to say with the psalmist, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. 
So just very briefly, that's the how of our praise, at least according to Psalm 111. But then, what about the where? Where should we praise the Lord? Well, we're still in verse 1, and we find the psalmist putting it like this. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Where should we praise the Lord? In the company of the upright and in the assembly. In other words, (coughs) I will give thanks to the Lord in Old Testament terms when God's people are gathered at the tabernacle, when we all come up to Jerusalem for the feasts, and probably also when local services are gathered for worship in the towns and villages round about. But how does this apply in the New Testament? What does it mean to think about the company of the upright and the assembly in our day? Well, we don't have a tabernacle in Jerusalem any longer. Christ is our tabernacle. Christ is the meeting place with God. And so the assembly of the upright gathers today wherever the people of God gather around the name of Christ. Wherever the church is gathered, in other words. And that may be in this room on a Sunday morning or Wednesday evening. It may be in the prayer room as we open our Lord's days in song at the beginning of prayer meeting. It may be in one of the back classrooms as the ladies gather for a game night. It may be in someone's living room as the saints gather for informal worship. And of course, it could be in a dozen other places as well, right? Wherever people gather around Christ, wherever his assembly may be found, that's where we should be praising the Lord. And so you see that the question of where we should worship is not so much about geography as it is about company. For whether a gathering of saints meets in a brick building in America or in a hut in India or in a corrugated metal shack in Ethiopia or under a mango tree in Nigeria or in the open air as in times of persecution in Britain, There you will find the company of the upright. There is the assembly, and there is where the praises of God should be sung. That's why it's so important that we be here. One of the reasons, anyway, is because God deserves our praise, and he deserves that we should come together to praise him. Now, that's not to say that God's praises shouldn't be sung when we're alone. Of course they should. It's not to say they shouldn't be sung when we're in our families. Of course they should. It's not even to say that they shouldn't be sung evangelistically when we're in the company of unbelievers. Of course they should. There are lots of times to praise the Lord. But again, the emphasis of this psalm is that God should be praised in the assembly, in the corporate gathering of the church. In fact, it's interesting that the New Testament word for church is really just a Greek word that means assembly. And so if we really want to put this psalm into the language of the New Testament, we might translate it, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the church. And that means that what we've just done tonight, briefly, has been a really good thing. We don't just sing because singing is enjoyable or because it helps fill the time so that the sermon needn't be quite so long. We sing because God is worthy. And because corporate singing, particularly, is a wonderful biblical pattern, one in which I hope you will join in the words of Wesley, lustily and with a good courage, or in the words of the psalmist, with all your heart. Are you a singer? I'm not asking if you're a good singer. But does it give you pleasure 
to sing to the Lord and to do so with all of your heart and especially to join in doing so with the people of God when they're gathered. It's a great privilege we have to lift our voices as one in praise to the Lord. And let me emphasize that it's a privilege not only to lift them in song, which is what I've mainly been talking about, but also to lift them in praise in the way that we begin most of these midweek gatherings. Perhaps never do our praises rise so high as when we're singing, but there is also great value of coming into the company of the upright like we do on these Wednesday nights and speaking just in your normal voice and your normal cadence about what God's done for your soul just in this last week that's gone by. So I've been speaking mostly about singing kind of praise, but this psalm doesn't have reference only to singing. And so carry that thought into the new year, that it's good to praise the Lord just with your regular speaking voice as well and come to these Wednesday meetings eager to do that in front of and with us all. So there, all in verse 1, is what you might call the what, the how, and the where of Psalm 111. What should I do? Praise the Lord. How? With all my heart. Where? In the company of the upright and in the assembly. But then most of the remainder of the psalm is concerned primarily and maybe most important of all with the why of our praise. What, how, where, but especially why? And that brings us to our third question. Why should we praise the Lord? I said that this is perhaps most important because it's when we understand the wherefore, it's when we understand why the Lord is so praiseworthy that we're motivated to actually praise the Lord and do so with all of our hearts and do so in the company of the upright. And so wherefore ought we praise the Lord? Why sing to him with all of our hearts and in the gathering of his saints? Well, the rest of the psalm is just jammed with reasons. Why, isn't it? Let me divide them in just, just two categories. Why should we praise the Lord? Well, on the one hand, because of his works. Because of his works. Did you notice that word repeated like a refrain over and over again in the psalm? Verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. Verse 3, splendid and majestic is his work. Verse 6, he has made known to his people the power of his works. Verse 7, the works of his hand are truth, of his hands are truth and justice. And all these sentences are piled up in explanation of why we ought to sing, why we ought to praise the Lord, verse 1, why we ought to give thanks to the Lord with all our hearts. Why? Because of his works, his works, his works, the psalmist says. Now, sometimes we get caught up in only giving God thanks for his works, only praising him for what he does, and especially for what he does for me, and forgetting to praise him simply for who he is. But this psalm reminds us that the other extreme would be an error too. We are to pay careful attention to what God does and even to what he does for us, and we are to praise him for it. We're to give careful heed to his works. And how so, according to this psalm? Well, for one thing, we read in verse 4 that he has made his wonders to be remembered. Wonders is just an even more spectacular way of referring to his works. He has made his wonders or his works to be remembered. 
which means that God intentionally gives us ways of calling to our minds his works done in days gone by. Now, obviously, and especially he's done that by recording the most crucial of those works in the scriptures. But he also jogs our mind about his works in other ways as well, by means of books of biography and church history, by means of other people sharing their testimonies of what God has done for their souls, by means of the Lord's Supper, where we remember Christ and his work on our behalf, by means of a set time on Wednesday nights to recall God's works in the week gone by and share them with the group and so on. God is in the business of making us remember his works, verse 4. And we're wise if we work with him in this endeavor. So that whether we're talking about the wonders he did in the timeline of the Bible or in the history of the church since the close of the canon or in our own lives, families, and church, we are wise if we remember the works of God so that we may better praise the God of the works. Find ways to remember what God has done. And then... Not only ought we remember God's works, but study them. In verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. We're to think them over, to consider in our minds how splendid and majestic they really are, verse 3. What sort of power, verse 6, they really required. What sort of God he must be who was able to bring the Israelites across the Red Sea and make the sun stand still for Joshua and take on flesh in Bethlehem's manger and endure the agonies of the cross to save a wretch like me. What kind of God must he be who can do all that? We are to mull the power and the compassion of God when we discover, for instance, that an old high school classmate who was a notorious hell raiser or maybe who was a homosexual or who was a strident atheist is now a bright Christian. Some of you know somebody like that. And you should pause now and again and study that work of God. You should think for a little while about just how far off that person really was. And you should consider how stubborn is the human will. And you should think about how hard it is for you sometimes even to change one small dietary habit. And then marvel at what sort of God is able to take that person whom you knew and make her into someone you barely recognize, but with whom you will spend an eternity in the presence of Jesus getting reacquainted. Just how much he changed them into the image of Jesus. Maybe some of you are yourselves that person who's been so changed by Jesus that your high school classmates would hardly recognize you. And so you have all the more capability of studying the works of the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. And so you must not only remember God's work, but mull them over. Study them. Consider what they teach us but why why remember the works of the lord why study them so that back to the main point we may praise the lord we should praise the lord when we remember the works that he's done and when we study what they say about them and the psalmist mentions throughout the psalm several categories of these works that we're to remember and study and praise god for 
Let me just point them out briefly. There are five of them. All of this is under the why. Why do we praise the Lord? Well, his works. What kind of works? Notice, first of all, verse 5. He has given food to those who fear him. He has given food to those who fear him. And indeed, though this psalm doesn't mention it, you and I also know that he has given food even to those who don't fear him. Perhaps we have a harder time appreciating this than did the people of old since most of our food comes out of the grocery store and we don't find ourselves scanning the tree line for wild game or watching the sky for rain clouds or praying that God would bring our crops in every fall. Food is, humanly speaking, much easier for us to come by these days. But it's still God who gives it. It's still God who makes the crops to grow and who keeps the land from blight and who keeps plague away from the livestock and who gives you the wherewithal to have a grocery budget every month. And so it ought not to be lip service when you thank God for your food at each meal. He has given food to those who fear him. That's reason to praise the Lord. And not only that, but then notice God's work in verse 6. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. Food, and then secondly, the heritage of the nations. Now here's another portion of this psalm that has both an Old and a New Testament application. It seems likely that an Israelite probably would have read verse 6 about God giving his people the heritage of the nations, and they would have thought about the book of Joshua, which we just finished studying, and in which the people of God were granted the land of the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite as their own promised possession. So that truly the Israelites could say, he has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. But you know, that was all just the prelude for something greater. Because, beginning with the disciples of Jesus, the New Testament company of the upright is out in the world even tonight on a mission not to conquer the nations, but to make disciples of them. Not to make their heritage our own, but to make them themselves our heritage, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're not just doing so with a few localized tribes like the Canaanites and the Hivites and so on. We're out there doing it among every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so we can sing even far more joyfully than Old Testament Israel. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. God is doing that even as we speak as people from various tongues come into his kingdom. And this, the work of God in world mission, is more reason to give thanks to the Lord with all your heart. Those missionary videos and visits to which we're occasionally privy ought to put songs of praise in our hearts. And not only should we praise the Lord for our food and for the success of the missionary enterprise, but also, verse 7, for his word for giving us his precepts, the works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are pure. His precepts. I don't think we always realize what a valuable treasure we hold in our hands. What with many of us owning half a dozen or more copies and so many translations available and the fact that some of us have been reading the Bible since the very earliest days of our literacy all of which is a blessing. 
But one of the brothers who ministers in Morocco was recently telling me about a man who traveled something like 24 hours to pick up an Arabic Bible, which he'd seen advertised on some place like Facebook. That's how they're getting the word in people's hands in Morocco. They advertise it on Facebook or other like places. And Muslims who see those ads take great risks and sometimes travel long distances to get a hold of one of those advertised Bibles, a treasure to them and a mystery to them, perhaps that they've never held in their hands before. And we have probably 60 of them in the room tonight. And what is written inside between the covers is the greatest of treasures, even if we've grown too accustomed to truly realize it. But when we begin thanking God for his works near the top of the list and even better than the food in verse 5, ought to be that he has given us the manna of his precepts. Praise the Lord. Why? Because the works of his hand, verse 7, hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. And then there's the work of redemption in verse 9. He has sent redemption to his people. Redemption to his people. The saints of old knew about redemption They knew what it was, first of all, to have been redeemed out of their slavery in Egypt, and they knew what it was to be redeemed from their sins, for they had all sorts of sacrifices to teach them about God's redemption and the price of it. And we not only have the same redemption from our sins, but we also know far more than they could understand the work of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who in the greatest of all God's works, took on our flesh and took on our nature and even took on all our temptations yet without sin. And because he took on our nature without sin, he was able to take on our sin as well and to die for it and for us as the price of our redemption. And this, I say, is the greatest of all God's works, not only in this psalm, but in all of history. It's our greatest reason for singing, for giving thanks with all of our hearts, for coming together in groups to praise the Lord because he has sent redemption to his people, because he's given us Christ and paid the penalty for our sins and rescued us out of our slavery to them and caused us to be born again to a living hope and rendered powerless the devil and promised soon to crush him under our feet so that there's reason why we probably sing of the cross more than any other subject in theology. It's the high point. It's the great work. This is the wonder, verse 4, that is to be remembered most of all. This is the work, verse 2, that is to be studied most of all, the cross of Christ. And this is the greatest of reasons to praise the Lord, verse 1, because he has sent redemption to his people. Give thanks to God, we've been saying, praise the Lord, we've been saying, for his works, for the way he's given us food, verse 5, for the way he is working in world missions, verse 6, for the work of giving us his word, his precepts, verse 7, and especially for the work of redemption, verse 9. And how have all these things come to us? Is it just that God looks down sometimes and feels like doling out a few gifts? Is it that he sometimes feels a gush of generosity and so puts a few packages in the mail for us? That's not what this psalm says, is it? Because did you notice, in connection with his giving us food and juxtaposed with his granting of redemption, 
the psalmist twice mentions God's forever faithfulness to his covenant. He has given food, verse 5, to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. Verse 9, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. This is the fifth work of God, that he is a covenant-making covenant-keeping God, such that every gift he pours out is not just the result of some whim of the moment, but is rather founded on a deep and lasting commitment to the welfare of his people, whom in Christ he has made his own. He has made a bond with you, Christian. A bond whose only earthly comparison is that of marriage. He has forever bound himself to you in covenant, forever committed to your welfare. That's why Getty and Townend have taught us to sing that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And that's why Paul can say that he is confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Because God's goodness is not poured out on impulse. It's poured out on the basis of a pact. An eternal covenant made with his son to redeem a people for himself and a covenant made with those people which he has ordained, verse 9, and which he will remember, verse 5, forever. And so why should we praise the Lord? Why should we come together and give thanks to the Lord with all our hearts? Because he's given us our food and he's given us his word and he's given us redemption through Christ's blood and he's given us the nation as our heritage and our fellow heirs, the nations. And he's given us the forever covenant that makes all of these things and every good thing secure for us as the people of God. Why should we praise the Lord? In short, for his works. And then having already gone on about as long as I'd hoped, let me just briefly mention in the second place that we should praise the Lord for his person. For his person, for the character, the attributes, the self that is behind all the works that he does on his people's behalf. It is the works that form the major emphasis of this psalm. But did you notice the attributes of God sprinkled throughout as well? Without expounding them, let me just point them out. Verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 4, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Verse 6 speaks of his power. And then verse 9, holy and awesome is his name. Righteousness, gracious, compassionate, power, holy, awesome. These are the attributes behind the works that we've just been mentioning, are they not? Because, for instance, how can God provide food for the whole world? Is it not because of his power? Verse 6. And why does God provide food for the whole world? Because he is gracious and compassionate. Verse 4. Or think of the power involved in mobilizing a mission force that is bringing the gospel to every nook and cranny on the globe. That's power. And ponder the grace and compassion behind God's sending of his son to bring redemption to his people. Nowhere do we see grace and compassion like that. And ask yourself, why did he do it by the shedding of his son's blood? 
Why didn't God just forgive sin for nothing? Why didn't he just wink at sin or sweep it under the rug? Because, verse 3, he's righteous. And because, verse 9, he's holy. And he cannot just sweep sin under the rug. So you get the point, I hope, without me belaboring it any further. God's works flow out of God's person. God's actions are the overflow of his attributes, and we do well to praise him for both, for his works and for his person. Or as Louis Giglio put it in his definition of worship, for who God is and for what he has done. So what is this psalm all about? Well, it's about praising the Lord. How? With all your heart. Where? In the company of the upright, in the assembly of of the church. Why? Because of who God is, and especially in this psalm, because of what he has done for his works in giving us, according to his covenant, our food, his word, the nations, and redemption in Christ Jesus. For all of this, praise the Lord. And for all of this, and note this well before we finish, fear the Lord. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. We don't have time to linger here either, but here at the end of the psalm, we are reminded that when we consider who God is and when we study the works that he has done, in addition to the response of praise, ought also to be the response of fear, the response of reverence, The kind of reverence that does what he says, verse 10. The study and the remembrance and the praise of God's works ought to lead us to a reverence for his person and an obedience to his word. So file that away as well tonight as the other bookend of this psalm to which I wish we'd given more attention and to which you must certainly give attention in your life. When we consider all that God has done and the greatness of who God is, our two responses ought to be, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, verse 1, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom, verse 10. Are you lacking in either of those areas? Are you lacking in praise? Are you lacking in the fear of the Lord? Run to the cross tonight for the redemption that God has sent to his people. And having washed in that fountain that has been opened for sin and for impurity, you will discover afresh the why behind both our reverence and our praise. And you will certainly, having gone to the cross, have fresh motivation to say with the psalmist, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly.